welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 81. Last week, I wrapped up a two-parter concerning the history around the Ark of the Covenant. From its appearance in biblical sources, to many of the potential resting places, assuming, of course, that it hasn't been destroyed. But I haven't quite finished covering the concept of the Ark, as there are two specific parts of the actual vessel that warrant a deeper dive. These are the mercy seat and the idea of cherubim. Associated with the mercy seat is a Jewish holiday known as the Day of Atonement, and more modernly as Yom Kippur, which I'm covering in this episode too. And with that short introduction, let's get started. According to the Old Testament, the mercy seat was the gold lid placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant. In Hebrew, it's called the carport, and apparently unlike the rest of the Ark, which was made from gold cover acacia wood, the mercy seat is thought to have been mostly, if not all, gold. This is due to the passage in Exodus 25, where God instructs Moses to have the cherubim on the lid. Then you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Skipping ahead, you shall make two cherubim of gold. You shall make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. In the NIV, the phrase atonement cover is used instead of mercy seat. In Exodus, we also see that the cover was made to essentially the same dimensions as the ark, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. We're not told how tall it was. In modern terms, this is about three feet nine inches by two feet three inches. For my metric listeners, close to 114 centimeters by 68. In a practical context, this is about the footprint of a somewhat small desk, and smaller than you probably think. I've previously covered the things thought to have been in the ark. Of course, the tablets on which God wrote the Ten Commandments, but also Aaron's rod, a pot with manna, maybe some of the priest's vestments, and these would fit into a somewhat small box. Except maybe for Aaron's rod. But, if a rod can bloom, then I'm sure fitting it into a box isn't as involved. Much of the history of the mercy seat is the same as that of the ark, as the two were essentially one thing, except of course when the top was removed to put the contents inside. And what the cover symbolized, Actually, symbolized isn't the right phrase, what it actually stood for. It was between these cherubim and over the mercy seat that God appeared to the Levite priest, or as written in Exodus, to Aaron specifically. According to the book of 1 Samuel, in the fourth chapter, the two inward-facing cherubim formed a seat for God, hence the name, or at least half of the name. This appearance was later connected with the Day of Atonement in Judaism, more frequently referred to as Yom Kippur, which is worth a bit of a sidebar. In the Greek Septuagint, the word we use as mercy seat translates to the phrase, the thing that atones. So, it could be a lid, a cover, or the way the ancient Israelites were forgiven for their transgressions against God's laws. 
the way he showed mercy for them. So, it was where he sat and showed mercy. Hence the phrase, mercy seat. Sometimes, but very rarely, you will see it translated as the monuments who ask for atonement, which gets me to the actual process of this atonement, occurring once a year on the tenth day of the seventh month, the Day of Atonement, quite naturally. According to the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus chapter 23, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark was kept, could only be entered on the Day of Atonement. And even on that day, only the high priest was allowed in. He would enter, then sprinkle blood from a sacrificial bull onto the mercy seat. This was done as an atonement for himself and his family, the other priest, the tabernacle, and the people of Israel. More specifically, Leviticus reads, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall deny yourselves and present the Lord's offering by fire, and you shall do no work during that entire day. For it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. For anyone who does not practice self-denial during that entire day shall be cut off from the people. And anyone who does any work during that entire day, such a one I will destroy from the midst of the people. You shall do no work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your settlements. It shall be to you a Sabbath of complete rest, and you shall deny yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. End quote. An alternate translation of deny yourself is to fast. So, deny yourself food. And that's what the people are supposed to do. An interesting tidbit about this passage is that it's found in Leviticus between several of the other festivals I've previously covered, the festival of weeks, booths, first fruits, etc. More detail concerning the ark can be found earlier in Leviticus in chapter 16. Here it begins, and I'm going to quote a little, then condense the passage into paraphrase, as in its entirety it's about 1,100 words, which would take some eight minutes or over a quarter of this episode to read through from the New Revised Standard Version. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come just any time into the sanctuary inside the curtain before the mercy seat that is upon the ark, or he will die. For I appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place, with a young bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering." God then provides an extensive description of what Aaron is to wear, and that he is to bathe before dressing. Picking up with the text again, He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, 
and Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for Azazel. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord, and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord, to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Pausing. Two things are introduced here. The first is easy, and that's the concept of a scapegoat. Literally. Well, almost. A goat escapes death, while another is sacrificed for the sins of the chosen people. Take your pick over which one is actually the scapegoat. The second concept, though, is a bit more complicated, and that's of Azazel. He was the fallen angel. During the second temple period, so between 516 BC and 70 AD, he was generally viewed as the thing responsible for introducing people to forbidden knowledge, the serpent in Genesis, generally viewed as a fallen angel. In the New Revised Standard Translation, the specific name only appears in Leviticus chapter 16, four times in the chapter, and that's it for the entire Bible. I'm passing on covering it now, and we'll get to that concept when I get back to that book of the Bible. The name doesn't appear in neither the NIV nor the King James, which instead translates the original Hebrew as the word scapegoat. Picking back up in the text, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall slaughter the bull as a sin offering for himself. End quote. God then gives Moses specific instructions on how to burn the incense in the Holy of Holies, ending with the warning that he's to follow the instructions exactly so that he doesn't die. Essentially, a cloud of smoke was to cover the mercy seat, concealing God as he sat there. Aaron was then to sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed bull and sprinkle it in front of the mercy seat seven times. He's then to do the same with the blood of the goat of sin offering. The text tells us that this was done as an atonement for the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. A similar process was followed with the application of blood on the horns of the altar. Aaron was then to lay his hands on the goat that did not draw the short straw, the one that was allowed to live. While his hands were on the goat's head, he was to confess over it all the inequities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and sending it away into the wilderness taken there by someone designated for the task. The goat was to take with it all of the sins of the people of Israel as it escaped into the wilderness. We are reminded later in the text that this goat was set free for Azazel. Aaron was to leave, undress, bathe, redress, and work through the burnt offering, once again atoning for the sins of the people of Israel. Then the dead bull and goat, the ones whose blood was used in the atonement, their bodies were to be taken away from the encampment and burned. Finally, the priest who handled the freed goat and the sacrificial animals are to wash their clothes and bathe before re-entering the camp. All of these rituals are exceedingly specific 
and left little room for error or guessing to this day. God then told Moses that this shall be a statute to you forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall deny yourselves, and you shall do no work, neither the citizen nor the alien who resides among you. For on this day atonement shall be made for you, to cleanse you from all your sins, you shall be clean before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall deny yourselves. It is a statute forever. End quote. The passage in this chapter of Leviticus ends very similarly to the later passage. Finally, we're told that Moses did as the Lord had commanded him. Later in the Bible, in the New Testament, we're also told of the mercy seat, but it gets translated a bit differently. In Romans chapter 3, in the New Revised Standard, in the NIV versions, it's translated as atonement. Though the footnotes of the NIV references the mercy seat, the King James doesn't use either word or phrase, but does follow the general concept. In all of these, the overriding concern is that the death of Jesus replaced the need to sacrifice animals and sprinkle their blood on top of the ark. And with that, there was no longer a need for a specific day on the calendar for atonement. It was every day, post-crucifixion. Hebrews chapter 9 goes a bit further, in some translations rendering the mercy seat as the atonement cover. And that's it for the mercy seat. Which gets me to the next topic. What are cherubim? Or when there's just one, singular, a cherub. And spoiler alert, they're not baby angels with bows and arrows. That's actually from Greek and Roman mythology. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Cherubim make their first appearance in Genesis, when God drives Adam and Eve from Eden and places an unspecified number of the creatures guarding the tree of life. In a general sense, they are thought to be angels tasked with guarding things. They are mentioned several times in the Old Testament, where we're giving additional details, including that they have wings. And when these wings are in motion, as told in Ezekiel, they are heard as far as the outer court of the temple, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks, like the roar of rushing waters, like the tumult of an army. And they don't have a single pair of wings, but two pair, so four wings in total. Under their wings they have hands, likely at the ends of arms. But that's not all. According to Ezekiel, each had four faces. The first face was that of the cherub, the second face was of a human, the third that of a lion, and the fourth that of an eagle. Earlier in Ezekiel, we get a slightly different description, with one of the faces, the one of the cherub, being replaced with that of an ox. Each face was on a different side, and their legs were straight, with their feet like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire, or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. Later in Ezekiel, we're told that they had two faces, a human and a lion, 
Now this difference between two and four faces has been explained that the other two faces, the ox or cherub and the eagle, were facing away from the prophet in this instance. So cherubim are not baby angels, but something likely very frightening, enough to guard the tree of life, and that when you lay your eyes on them for the first time, you have to be reminded to not be afraid. As time wore on, the understanding of their appearance morphed into something a bit different, which shouldn't come as a surprise. How else do you get from four faces, four wings, and calf legs to babies? A few early Midrashic literary sources describe them as not really having bodies, but being of a visible spirit. It was in the Western Christian tradition where they became small, plump, winged boys. This perception likely stemmed from a cross-association with the Roman boy deity of Cupid, the son of Venus. More on that association in a minute. In other Middle Eastern societies, there were depictions of similar creatures, bodies of land-dwelling animals with wings, sometimes also with a human head. And they played similar roles, guarding valuable objects or places, and accompanying the society's deity. Back in the Old Testament, they would often appear with God, as they did to Ezekiel, and their image was woven into the curtains of the ancient tabernacle. Solomon followed suit in the building of his temple, installing in the inner sanctuary a pair of cherubim statues made from olive wood, each ten cubits high. So, about fifteen feet or just under five meters. Each wing was seven and a half feet over two meters, for a wingspan of at least fifteen feet over four meters. These olive wood cherubim were then overlaid with gold. We're later told that other cherubim carvings were placed throughout the temple. Overall, they would be mentioned almost 100 times in the Old Testament. In Judaism, there is a general belief in angels, but what they are and what they do remains under debate. The discussion even includes the naming of the lead cherub, named Karubiel. The other end of the discussion maintains that angels are not really beings, but are more representatives of various laws of nature. Some Midrashic authors claim that the cherubim were created on the third day and therefore had no definite shape and could appear as either men or women, or as spirits or angels. Other writers would posit that they were the first objects created in the universe. The first century AD Jewish-Roman historian Josephus would write that no one can tell, or even conjecture, what was the shape of these cherubim. Another Midrashic writer claimed that when Pharaoh pursued Israel to the Red Sea, God took a cherub from the wheels of his throne and flew to the spot, for God inspects the heavenly worlds while sitting on a cherub. The writer continued by claiming that the cherub is not something material and is carried by God, not God carried by the cherub. Curiously, in the Talmud, which was written later, there were descriptions of the creatures as being from the heavens. In Christianity, at least among those that think about such things, they hold that cherubim are the second highest ranked angels behind the seraphim. I'll get to the seraphim later, 
but for now know that they are regarded as the highest angelic class and serve as the caretaker of God's throne and continuously shout praises, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. According to Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim are described as fiery six-winged beings with two wings that cover their faces, another two that cover their feet, and the last two are used to fly. In Revelation chapter 4, we can read, Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. End quote. And given that they have four faces and six wings, and the song they constantly sing, these seem like they're both seraphim and cherubim. And the angelic hierarchy, according to some, just below the cherubim are beings known as thrones. They are sometimes referred to as elders and are a group of heavenly beings mentioned by Paul in the first chapter of Colossians, where they are thought to serve as living symbols of God's justice and authority and are symbolized by the representation of a throne hence the name. Early Christian artistic depictions of cherubim deviated just a little from scriptural descriptions. A 5th century mosaic at the Thessalonian church of Hoseos David showed the four-headed being in a fashion similar to that found in Ezekiel. Finally, in later Western art, cherubim became associated with the puto, which were artistic representations of small, unclothed children, similar to the Greek deity Eros and the Roman deity Cupid. Outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition is Islam, where cherubim are not specifically mentioned in the Quran. Some Islamic writers believe that lower classes of angels are not capable of envisioning the higher class cherubim. This is due to their physical brightness, so bright that the light emanating from one could light up the whole world. This Islamic thought continues with the belief that when Moses asked God to show him his face, he made one of his cherubim shine upon the mountain, shattering it to pieces. According to this tradition, God was showing Moses that since he could not bear to look at a mere cherub, he would not be capable of looking at God. Also, some Islamic traditions commonly associate these beings with what they call the sixth heaven, or sometimes with the bearers of the throne. In the far distant future, I may delve into the belief of different levels of heaven, if I can figure out how to separate the history from the theology. And that's Cherubim, and a good stopping point for this episode. Join me next week, and I'll continue working my way through Exodus, you don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. 
this week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.